You know, it's been about two and a half weeks now since I've returned from a ministry trip to Zambia in Africa. And it was an incredible time, an encouraging time. Need to see our pastors, the pastors we work with there, and leaders growing and studying and proclaiming God's word. It was such an encouragement to me. But you know, suppose this. How do you know that I actually went to Africa and not somewhere else? How do you know that I wasn't just hanging out in my backyard for a couple weeks or, or I was in a different country? In other words, how would you verify the claims that I'm making that I actually went to Africa? Facebook, there you go. <laughs> There's one way, okay. Well, even better than Facebook, you could go and ask my wife, Casey, was I here September 1 to 14? And she will tell you he better have been in Zambia because if not, he's in trouble because I was all here with our five kids without him, Right? But there's some other ways, right? You could check, check the plane tickets, right? Are there plane tickets that shows going to Zambia? That's just one way flight. I did come back, so just one way. But Lusaka, that's Zambia, right? You could check my passport. In my passport, is there a stamp from Zambia? What's the date on there, right? You could check the pictures on my phone because the pictures there, they show time and location and, and, and you can see the pictures there. You could even contact the people in Zambia that I said that I was with and you could ask them, was he actually there as he claimed to be? In other words, you'd need evidence, right? To verify if my claim was actually true. But say you investigated all of those things and, and, and you found no flights to Zambia but just to Italy instead. No passport stamp from Zambia, but just to Italy instead. And then you look at pictures on my phone and on Facebook, and you just see me at these famous Italian landmarks, right? The Colosseum and the Leaning Tower of Pisa and Venice. And you call the people in Zambia and say, hey, did Corey there? Was he there? And they said, he showed up. What would you conclude? What he was saying was false because the evidence doesn't match his claim. And that's what was going on here in what John was writing to the churches, what he was dealing with in his first letter here. The context wasn't verifying travel claims, but he was writing to true believers in Christ. He was writing to them, warning them about the fallacy or the error of people who claim to be true believers in Christ, but their lives didn't match their profession. So John lays out some tests. He lays out tests that will serve as evidence of genuine faith, evidence of authentic faith in Jesus. They can be applied in our day as well to find out and to distinguish who are the true followers of Christ versus those who are false. Please take your Bible, your Bible app, whatever you have. Please turn to 1 John chapter 2. If you're with us here in person, we have some Bibles in the seats in front of you. You're welcome to use one of those Take a look at the table of contents. No shame there. Find that, or you can look at the page number there in our copy. You know, as Pastor Phil has been taking us through this letter, we've seen that it's a, it's a lot about false teachers and false teaching. That's something that John hits on time and time again. In fact, later on in chapter 2, John's going to speak of people who apparently were part of the Christian community. At least at one time, they were part of the church, but then they left it, they went out, and their going out showed that they never truly belonged to it. They were not real, they were not true, false. But undoubtedly, they stirred up a lot of confusion. They stirred up a lot of unrest amongst the church with their 
faulty teaching. And so John teaches here sort of twofold. One, to expose and refute their teaching in a sense and, and, to, and, and to be able to tell us here's the true from the false, here's how you distinguish. But on, on the other hand, he's writing to true believers to assure them or to reassure them that they're truly in Christ, that they truly do know him and belong to him. And that's what we're gonna see and that's what we're gonna be challenged with as we look at 1 John this morning. 1 John 2 three through six. Here's, that's our passage this morning. Let me read it. Here's what God's word says. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. John begins this section here with a, a positive statement to those who he's writing to. And again, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to true believers and by application even to us today. But this was a letter that was meant to be circulated probably to many different churches around the surrounding region of where he wrote it there in Ephesus. And this positive statement, it, it's his way of saying to true believers. It, it's his way of assuring them that they can know that they have a saving knowledge of God. And that's point number one in your outline if you're following along there. True believers can have assurance of knowing God. That's verse three. Look at what he says. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. You see, the key word here in this verse and really the rest of the passage and in some sense throughout the whole entire letter, it's the word know. It's the word know. It appears four times here in this little short passage, right? Even twice in this verse three and the particular verb form uh, for this word happens 25 times throughout the letter. Knowledge of God, knowing God, that was very important in, in ancient religions and especially to a group of religions that became known as the Gnostic religions. And the, and the Gnosticism and those religions became, uh, became stronger and more developed in the second century, but the whispers of them, the roots of them, were, were present even way before that, even into the first century. And so that's some of, uh, most likely, what John is combating here, some of that faulty teaching and belief system. And amongst the Gnostics, they thought that the physical world, the material world was evil. And so the whole goal is to get away from the physical world and ascend into the spiritual world, which was good. In order to do that, you needed to be enlightened through a special knowledge, a secret knowledge that came through a, a mystical experience or, or a vision. And so because they, they devalued the physical world, the material world itself, it didn't really matter what you did in the, in the physical world. Immoral living was really no big deal, right? Because the, the, the physical world was, was, was evil in and of itself. John confronted this faulty teaching back then. He confronts any other teaching that would be like it today or what would come up in the future. Anything that excuses sinful practice, excuses it. Or that says how one lives doesn't matter, doesn't demonstrate anything about one's relationship with God. No, the test of truly knowing God. It's not an obtaining some special knowledge through a mystical experience or, or a vision or anything of that nature. The test of truly knowing God, of, of testing whether one has a right relationship with him, is do they obey God's commands? It's verse three. It's right there. Now, John doesn't give specifics about it, about what he means about his commands, 
But it's likely here that John at least has, at the very minimum, the command to love one another in mind. Because that's the next section. We're going to look at that next week and in our sermon next week. But he talks about loving God and loving others all throughout this letter. And he focuses heavily on it. So friends, John is assuring true believers in his day. He's assuring believers in our day that we really can know. We can know that we have a right relationship with God. We can truly know if we have a saving relationship with him. Not just knowing facts about him, that doesn't do it. But we can truly know him in a personal way. That's the meaning here of the second no in that verse three. When John says, this is how we know we, can come, we have come to know him in that personal way. And that comes through keeping God's commands. So chapel, I want to make sure that we don't misunderstand here. This could very much be twisted and turned and misconstrued. I want to make sure that we don't do that. We don't do that. Listen, John is not saying here that one is made right with God by their works. That's not what he's saying. As if obedience earns a right standing with God, as if it's a work that we somehow attain by our own efforts, right? If that was the case, Christ died for nothing. He died for nothing. If we could simply earn our way to God through what we do, but you and I know that's not the gospel message, is it? The gospel message is that we are sinners through and through. We are spiritually sick. We're dead in our sin. We're separated from God. We deserve his punishment, and we can do nothing in ourselves to, to, to make up for that. No amount of good works, no amount of things that we do on our own, no amount of obedience is gonna make ourselves right to God as if we can ascend up to God. We are utterly and totally dependent upon God, upon Jesus. And so we look to him. And that's why God sent Jesus to go and do what we couldn't do. He died the death that we deserve for our sin, but Jesus could do it. He was sinless and he went in our place and he died for our sins on that cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead three days later, just as he said he would. He conquered sin and he conquered death. And so we come into having a right relationship with God. We can truly have a saving knowledge of God, not by what we do to make up for our sin, but by believing in him by trusting in him as my savior, that what he did on that cross was for me. That's how we're brought into a right relationship with God. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For it is by grace, that's God's favor or his kindness that we don't deserve and cannot earn. For it's by grace you've been saved. That's rescued from our sin. How does that come about? Through faith, through trusting in him. It's not from, this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Chapel, I don't know how long you've been a believer, many of you. No matter how long we're a believer, we need Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 going through our mind and our heart every single day, don't we? We need that. That's the gospel. It's not what I do. It's what he did for me. So let's not misunderstand what John is saying here. Obedience is not a condition that we must, that we must meet to, or attain in order to have a right standing with God. That's not what he's saying. But obedience is characteristic of one who truly does know God. That's what he is saying. In other words, it's the evidence. Obedience is the evidence. It's the demonstration that one truly knows God and is saved. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said it like this. Only he who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. So church, obedience identifies 
a true believer. It's characteristic of one who truly knows God. It's not the condition, it's not a work that qualifies one to be a true believer, but it's also not perfect obedience. It can't be perfect obedience. If that were the case, John would be contradicting himself already to what he's already said in chapter one because in verse eight and 10 he said, if we claim to be without sin, the truth is not in us. And so you and I know that even as believers who genuinely know and have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we still sin, right? We still fall short of his perfection in in our thoughts and our words and in our actions at times. And when we become aware of those things, we need to confess them. We need to go to God and confess it and agree, God, that was wrong. That was, that falls short of your perfection. That's why Jesus had to come for me, because of that sin, because of my sin. And it, it doesn't belong in my life. Give me the strength to turn from it, to repent of it, and to come back to you, and to follow you, and reflect you. That's what we need to do. That's a process that we need to, that we need to be that we need to be about all the time in our lives as, as true believers. So it's not perfect obedience here that John's saying. But obedience cer- certainly should be consistent in our lives. Obedience should be a, a pattern or consistency in the life of a true believer. I mean, we can't get away from that right here in verse 3. This, I believe, is what this whole passage is really about. Let's look at this right here on the screen. Obedience shows who truly knows. That's what this passage is saying. Obedience shows who truly knows God. John is saying the one who is living in obedience to God's commands, especially loving others, that person can have assurance that they truly know God. They can have the assurance that they belong to him, that that their faith is real and genuine and true. And if that's you today, be encouraged by these words. Be encouraged Keep loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Keep doing it. Keep following Jesus no matter the cost. Keep obeying. Keep living for him. You can be encouraged today. But friends, on the other hand, if there's an ongoing pattern of disobedience in our lives, an ongoing pattern of not loving others, if sin is simply the defining characteristic of our lives, we can have no assurance that our faith is real. In fact, John says this is characteristic of one who does not truly know God, no matter what they may say. See, unlike true believers, their profession and their practice, they don't match up. They're not consistent. That's point number two on your outline. Look at verse four. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is, is not in that person. So John here is warning us against those who talk a good game but have no walk to go with it. You see, I, growing up in sports and as an athlete, I've been exposed to a lot of people that, that, that can talk a good game. Man, they, they can tell you all about what they're gonna do and how great they are, but when they get out on the court or the field or whatever, they don't back it up. Do you know anybody like that? It's rampant, right, in the sports world at times. But you know what? At least it was rampant here in John's day as well amongst the church. Apparently there were some claiming to know God. They were talking a big game. It's probably the same group that John referred to back in chapter one, those who claimed to have fellowship with God and yet what was their walk? They walked in darkness. They claimed to know this God who is light, who's perfect in every way and yet the evidence of their lives showed darkness and John's saying those two things don't match. 
probably the same group here. He's talking about those who fail to do what God commands. And this is not just an occasional or an infrequent disobedience to God's command. In fact, the tense here for the verb do in the original language, it indicates an an ongoing action. In other words, this failure to do what God's commands, it's, it's a continual pattern for them. It's characteristic of their lives. Their practice doesn't match their profession. Though they claim to know God, John says they're a liar, that they're not the real deal. The truth is not in them, meaning God's truth has not taken root in them. In other words, they're not true believers, even though they claim to be with their lips. And friends, throughout the Bible, we see that true faith True knowledge of God is revealed in obedience to what he says, in obedience to his commands, in obedience to his will, which he gives us right here in his word. Here's a couple instances of that. Jesus said these words in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Later on, uh, Matthew 12, 50, Jesus said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I love what scholar D.A. Carson says about this verse. He says this, we do not make ourselves Jesus' close relatives by doing the will of his heavenly Father. Rather, doing the Father's will, here's the key words, identifies us as his mother and sisters and brothers. In other words, the doing doesn't earn us a spot in the family of God. The doing shows, the doing demonstrates, the doing is the evidence that we truly are in the family. That's what these verses are saying. That's what John is saying here. And so as we bring all this together, chapel, we've got to know that true knowledge of God, true saving knowledge is not just pray a prayer and then go live how you want. Not just pray a prayer 10 years ago or 30 years ago and then live totally opposite of how God says and think, oh, I'm good, I prayed a prayer one time. It's not real. Thinking that God's just gonna overlook my continuing unrepentant sinful behavior. It's also not just saying Jesus is God or, or that he's our savior, but then acting practically like his teachings have no bearing on our life or that he doesn't really care about disobedience. The scriptures are clear. True faith is evidenced by a life that matches one's profession. Not perfectly, we've already talked about that. Not perfectly, but it's the consistent pattern. It's an overall lifestyle of obedience to God's word. Obedience shows who truly knows God, friends. So let me ask you here today, what areas of your life do your profession of faith and your practice not match up? What are those areas for you? If somebody observed your life, not knowing you at all, would they see a consistency between, between what you say you believe and how you actually live your life? You see, if not, we need to take action, friends. There's forgiveness that's there, but we cannot stay in unrepentant sin and think God's cool with it. I'm good. It's not cool with it. We need to confess it, repent of it, and get back to him. Consistency of profession and practice. It helps us identify those who are true from those who are false. But you know what? This also acts as a mirror for us, church, to put in front of us and say, am I Is my faith real? That's what this is talking about. That's what God, God's word is doing to us this morning. Obedience shows who truly knows God. 
it also demonstrates love for God. That's number three on your outline if you're following on there. Let's look at the first half of verse five. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. John's making a contrast here to verse four, to the one who claims to know God but doesn't obey him. Here he's making a connection not between obedience and knowing God, but obedience and love, right? Love. Now, some translations may say the love of God. You have a translation that says that? A lot of them do, and that's, that's not wrong. That's an accurate translation. The NIV says love for God. But if it says love, the love of God, it could mean God's love for us. That might be what's being communicated here, or God, simply God's kind of love. But I think the NIV translation is right on here. I think it's really reflecting at what John is getting at here. In fact, later on in chapter 5, John is going to connect love for God and obedience. Let's look at it, 1 John 5, 3. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. Here's how we show love to God. We obey him. That's how we do it. Our obedience demonstrates love for God. It shows, when we obey, it shows that our love for him is mature. It's complete. Listen, one simply cannot love God without always also doing what he commands. This is what some seem to be claiming in John's day, right? That he's combating their faulty thinking, their, their faulty theology and, and practice, and we need to combat it. And chapel, when we really think about all that God has done for us, I mean, just think about it, right? How he loved us before we ever loved him. He loved us like that. He generously sent Jesus, his own son. Can you imagine sending your own son to die a death that he doesn't deserve to die? That's what he did for us. He's been generous and patient and gracious and kind with us. Obeying him shouldn't be a burden for us. It shouldn't be something that we do just to avoid punishment or even out of sense of duty. Obeying him should be our way of saying, God, I love you because You've shown your love to me. You've been so kind and good to me. Jesus said it this way, John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. That's what he said to his disciples. If you love me, keep my commands. We want to please him, church, because he's been so good to us, and obeying him is the way that we do that. Obedience shows who truly knows God. It also demonstrates our love for him. And finally, we can have assurance that we truly belong to God. Look at the second half of verse five. This is how we know we are in him. Verse six, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now John concludes this section the same way that he began it in verse three, right? Where he detailed how true believers could be assured of having a right relationship with God. This time, though, he uses a different phrase than he did in, in verse 3, right? This, he spoke there of assurance of knowing him. Here in verse 6, he says, you can have assurance that we are in him. And, and this is the same as the phrase in verse 6 of uh, live in him, or some translations say abide in him. And while this phrase is different than knowing him, it certainly is related. In fact, John's already spoken in chapter 1 of, of those who have fellowship with God. He's spoken of those who walk in the light, right? And then here, those who know him. All of these things, all of these phrases describe one who has a right relationship with God, one who has true saving faith, one who has a close and intimate and persevering kind of personal relationship with God. So church, how can we have assurance? 
that we're in him, as John says. How can we have assurance of that? Well, we can't just say or claim that we live in him or abide in him. John says we have to live like Jesus did. That's how we can have assurance that we're in him, when we live as Jesus did. You know, it's been about 12 years ago now that Casey and I moved from Perrysburg, Ohio, all the way out across the country to Phoenix, Arizona. Seems like a lifetime ago. There's been a lot that's happened in 12 years. But uh, at the time, we didn't even have a place to live out there. Casey had a job, so that was good. Uh, I was going to be a full-time seminary student at Phoenix Seminary. We didn't even have a place to live, and that just seems crazy. But we didn't have any kids at the time, so it didn't seem that crazy. Just, we just went. We just did it. We figured out, we'll figure it out along the way. Well, we had a, a great time. We, basically, we had an apartment at the time, so we packed up all of our stuff in like one of those containers, like one of those pods, pods was the company. You know? So you, you pack it all in there, you lock it up, you call them up and say, okay, you can come and pick it up, transport it, store it for us, then we'll call you and tell you with the address to deliver it. But we don't have an address yet, so just hold on to it. That was kind of what we were doing. So we took our time and journeying across country to get out there. It took about five days, had some fun time together, and we arrive in beautiful, sunny Scottsdale, Arizona in August of 2010 at 115 degrees. <laughs> Welcome to Arizona. Welcome to the desert. Man, it's like an oven out there. And so, you know, our stuff is still en route, and we don't have a place yet, and finally we did, but then we we're starting to think of, how are we going to unpack this thing? How do, you know, is this going to be the two of us? We had, I think we had some others to help us pack it. We went to Phoenix Seminary orientation, didn't know a soul in Phoenix, didn't know anyone. We go there to the seminary and meet somebody who I was just talking with them, and talking about our situation. I wasn't asking if he would help us at all. I wasn't asking him to feel bad for us at all, but he just said, hey, my wife and I can help you. I was like, wait, what? You don't even know me. You don't know my wife and I. And if you check the temperature dial lately, it's 115 out, and you're offering to help us unpack and move our stuff. And he said, yeah. And the next words, I'll never forget what he said. Just very nonchalantly, very simply, very genuinely. He just said, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Now, it's simple. It wasn't profound. But why I've not forgotten it is because he really meant it. This guy loved the Lord with all of his heart, and this was just, he was just going about his day, and he found an opportunity, somebody in front of him that had a need. What would Jesus do? Well, what did he do when he was here on this earth? He served. This was Andy and Lindsay serving Jesus, serving us, just in a small way, a practical way, of helping us unload our stuff. Friends, to live like Jesus we don't have to do miraculous things like cast out demons and, and raise people from the dead like he did when he was here on this earth, right? No, we can do it by just being faithful to imitate and reflect his character in our day-to-day -day lives. That's what Andy and Lindsay did. They saw a need, they met it. They said, what would Jesus do? That's how he would, then I'll do the same thing. And we can do that. Those of us that are married, how can we do that in our marriage? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, right? How did he love the, how did he love the church? How did he love his bride? He laid his life down for her. He died for her. Husbands, we're to sacrifice for our lives. Do you love your wife like that? Sacrifice for her. Put her needs above your own. Live with her in an understanding way, as, as Peter says, right? Don't neglect her physically or emotionally or spiritually. Show her 
that you appreciate her. Show her that, you, that she is, that you cherish her for who she is, not just what she can do for you. Love your wives, husbands, like Christ loved the church. Do it this week. Wives, how about for you? How can you encourage your husbands? We husbands, we need encouragement. We need encouragement. How can you come along and just encourage your husband this week, saying, I love you. How can I show love to you? How can I come under your leadership, right? How can, I, how can we work together as a team? Maybe it's forgiving him for something wrong that he said or he did. Children and kids, how can you live like Jesus this week at home or in school, right, at home by obeying your parents, even when you don't agree with them, even though you don't like what they're telling you, but you'll do it because you love God, because you want to live like Jesus. You do it by loving your brother or your sister, even when, when they're not very lovable or when they don't deserve it, or when you're at school and you see that one who, who no one else wants to talk to, everyone else makes fun of, would you be the one to notice them? Would you be the one to go to them and be a friend to them and talk to them and show that you care? Jesus was all about that in his life, going to the outcast, going to the people that everyone else didn't want to be around, didn't want to be seen with, didn't want to touch, and he's in their homes, loving them, showing them that they had value because they're created in the image of God. Could you do that as a student? You could live like Jesus right where you're at. In our workplace, we live like Jesus by, by being a person of integrity, by being a person of our, of our word. Listen, friend, there's a thousand ways, right, that we can live like Jesus wherever God has placed us, but every single one of those ways, they all require us to die to ourselves, if not just a little bit. Die to our own wants, our own desires, our own needs, and instead, look to God, look to others. Die sometimes even to our own schedule. This is how Jesus lived when he was on this earth. You remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane toward the end of his life, he knew his time was coming to die and he prayed, remember this, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. I don't want to go through this, but then these words, yet not as I will, but as you will. I'll do what you want, Lord. John 6, 38, Jesus said, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Friends, just as Jesus obeyed his father, so we are to imitate him. We're to obey our heavenly father. So let me ask you, what area in your life is all about you? It's all about you, and it needs to be turned over to him. What is it in your life that you say, well, I know what God's word says about this area, but I just can't bring myself to fill in the blank. Or sometimes we rationalize. But, but, but it's not that bad, is it? But, but others do this. No one's found out about it. It's not really hurting anyone. Or how about this one? I deserve this. I deserve this. Not as I will, but as you will, Father. Those were Jesus' words, but church, they need to be our words, genuinely. Genuinely. As those words become our words, as we live like Jesus, as we obey God's commands, we have assurance that we're in him. We have the assurance that we are abiding in him and living for him. And yet, church, we're not left to our own power to do this. 
our own willpower to say, okay, I just got to muster up enough willpower to, to obey God. No, we learn from Jesus' words in John's gospel. That's not how it is. To live in him, to abide in him, to remain in Christ, right? We will live like him if we're abiding in him. We will produce spiritual fruit if we stay connected to him. Jesus' words, John 15, 4 and 5, remain in me as I also remain in you. That word remain, it's the same word in the original language that John uses right here in verse 6, uh, to live in him. It's the same word. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Here it is. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. What a promise. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, I've used this illustration before, but I think it really helps us understand the connection here between abiding or remaining in Christ and living like him or producing spiritual fruit. You know, when I first tried to, it was when I first tried to, to learn to water ski. And this was in my teen years, and, and I was doing it all wrong because when I tried to water ski, I tried to pull myself up out of the water by my own strength, right? Try to get up out of that water. And what I kept doing is fail, fail, fail every time. And finally, I couldn't, I was, I, I had enough. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I don't get it. I can't get this. But when I finally learned, it's not about me pulling myself up and muscling myself out of the water. That boat has all of the power that's needed to pull my body up out of that water. And so when I just stayed there and hold on to that rope, and just let the power of the boat do the work, I popped right up, and I had an incredible time water skiing. And you know what? The same is true spiritually. We need to recognize all the power is in Christ. It's not in our willpower. I just need to attach myself to him, stay connected in him. And as I do that, right, I will live like him. As I'm abiding in him and remaining in him and connected to him, I will produce spiritual fruit, and I will have the assurance that I'm in him that I belong to him. So chapel, stay connected to the vine. We don't trust in our own abilities. We trust in the vine. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Friends, you and I know that we live in a world that we have a wealth of knowledge at our fingertips all the time, don't we? 24-7, 365. But we have to be discerning of that knowledge. We've become expert fact checkers, haven't we? Maybe you've been fact checking me throughout this. You're on your phone. You're saying, I'm not sure that matches up, pastor, okay? But we know that, but we know where to get. We've got the technology. We can see what somebody's saying. Is it true or is it false? We can test it. We don't have to just accept blindly what somebody says. And the same goes for us spiritually. Anybody, anybody can claim to know God. Anybody can claim to be in a right relationship with him. But God's word tells us we got to look at the evidence to tell us what is true. Anybody can talk a good game, but it's the walk that really matters. Listen, what we do, how we live, it does not earn us a right standing with God, but it is the evidence that our profession is real. If you don't remember anything else from this morning, I want you to remember this right here. In fact, let's say it out loud together. Let's read this out loud. Obedience shows who truly knows God. Obedience shows who truly knows God. That's the evidence of who is in a right relationship with God. That helps us to discern between who is true and who is false. It's what gives us assurance that we truly belong to him.
Let's pray as we close this morning, chapel. Let's pray. You pray. You talk with God now at this time. Maybe things that he's bringing up to you as you've thought about these words. Maybe you do profess Christ as your Savior, but, but there's an area of disobedience in your life that you need to confess to God. This is that time for you to do that right now. Is there an area where you're clinging to your will, your wants, your desires instead of his? Would you ask him to turn your heart to him? Maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online and and you know you haven't trusted in Jesus. You don't even claim to know him, but today you're ready to. Listen, his forgiveness is available to you. His grace is more than enough for you. All you gotta do is reach out to him and say, Lord, I've wronged you. I'm separate from you, but I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose again from the dead. Today, I want you to cleanse me and make me whole. However you need to pray this morning, you spend some time this morning. Reflect on your life and on this passage. You talk with God. This is Pastor Corey Kugel, and thank you so much for listening today. Make sure you also hit subscribe and then visit our website, which is yourplacetobelong.com. There you can keep up with all that's happening at the chapel. Our building is located at 4250 Washington Avenue in St. Joseph, Michigan. We hope you'll visit us on a Sunday morning for one of our worship services at 9 or 1035, either in person or online. Thanks again for listening.